Okay, let's talk about your next patient. The next patient is a very nice lady that I've taken care of since 2008 when she initially presented in her early to mid-60s with quite an acute presentation with multiple rib fractures, severe hypercalcemia, calcium was around 14, acute renal failure with a creatinine close to 11. Her workup was consistent with the IgA kappa myeloma with initial M-spike of 4.8. She had a bone marrow with 50% plasma cell involvement with normal metaphase cytogenetics and fish panel. She also was found to have extensive lytic bone disease and also treated in the hospital with bortezomib, dexamethasone, and cyclophosphamide, and also required dialysis initially. She also had an interesting complication in the hospital where she developed spontaneous peritoneal hemorrhage that actually required a trip to the operating room, although no obvious cause for that was found. Spontaneous peritoneal hemorrhage, you said? Yes. You ever seen that in myeloma? You know, we've seen it in patients that have coagulopathies because of the protein binding factors. This patient had a normal coag workup, so it's hard to attribute that anything outside of just a large paraprotein burden that can cause spontaneous hemorrhage. She was treated for four cycles with a very good partial remission and then underwent an autologous transplant in July of 2008, followed by no maintenance therapy. She relapsed in October of 2010, so roughly 27 months after her transplant, with a new fracture of her right humerus. At that point, she was started on therapy with lenalidomide that she had problems with at the 10 milligram dose due to cytopenias and required a dose reduction to 5 milligrams, which she tolerated relatively well together with weekly dexamethasone. She was treated until she progressed again about 11 months later and at that time was given bortezomib subcutaneously together with dexamethasone, but had no response and progressed. She then received DCEP for two cycles with no response, VTD for another two cycles with no response, and at that point I sent her to a colleague of mine to see if she would be eligible for a compassionate program with colfizumab before its approval, but unfortunately due to blood count issues, she was not eligible for that study. She then received bendamustine for three cycles from April of 2012 to July 2012 with no response. At that time, colfizumab became available and she was started on that in August of 2013 and she stayed on that therapy for almost 10 months with a partial response to treatment. At that point, she progressed and then was started on treatment with pomalidomide, dexamethasone, and clarithromycin, which she received from June of 2013 to December 2013, actually with an excellent response with a very good partial remission. Unfortunately, more recently, she started progressing again and has now been initiated on treatment with weekly bortezomib, low-dose weekly doxyl, and dexamethasone. So a couple of questions about her course. How did she do in the carfilzomib? Any side effects? She actually did very well. And as you'll see that despite her numerous treatments and relapses, she looks remarkably well and has always tolerated therapy very well despite significant issues with blood count issues requiring not infrequent transfusions of both blood and platelets. She has not 
required any hospitalizations for any complications or any manifestations of a disease itself and has tolerated all therapies really very well. I'm assuming she had no problem with shortness of breath or dyspnea? Correct. I'm just kind of curious where you are today with that issue. There's been you know, questions raised. I've heard people raise about the issue of cardiac issues with carfilzomib, pulmonary issues, fluid overload. Where do we stand on that today? Well, I think, you know, the ultimate judge is going to be the randomized trials where we're going to have patients and see apples to apples what happened to them. I think what we know from the retrospective analysis of the data set that allowed carfilzomib to be approved was that there is a small incidence of cardiac dysfunction that for the most part is reversible and is present in a very small fraction of patients. That fraction may increase as patients get treated at higher doses. But again, we'll also know that in another randomized trial where 56 milligrams of carfilzomib is being compared with standard dose and schedule of bortezomib. So we'll have the answer. I think what we know now is that there are some things that one can potentially expect some dyspnea that occurs in the first cycle or two that is usually self-limited, and volume and fluid overload, as you mentioned, can be a problem. And so in those patients, reducing the amount of fluid that goes in with each dose of carfilzomib can help. Patients that have persistent symptoms, and I think you do an appropriate cardiac workup, make sure that they've not developed cardiac dysfunction and you know treat them appropriately based on that. What kind of uh, cardiac history would it take to get you to start thinking twice about carfilzomib? So that's an interesting question. I think patients with symptomatic heart failure at the time I'm starting them, that would be the only patient subset that I would think about it. But outside of that, I mean, we've treated patients who are old, we've treated young patients. If you get a cardiac dysfunction associated with carfilzomib, it tends to be sporadic. It may be higher in patients with pre-existing heart failure, but outside of that, it's hard to know. Have you seen any patient you thought had peripheral neuropathy from carfilzomib? No. In fact, we put patients on carfilzomib who had significant bortezomib-related neuropathy and were able to get through. In terms of the pomalidomide, you said she tolerated all her therapy well, so I'm assuming that applies to her. What are your thoughts about the pomalidomide-dex-clarithromycin combination this lady got? Yeah, I mean, this comes to us from the group that added clarithromycin to thalidomide and then lenalidomide. I think their data is certainly very compelling. In my mind, biologically, the main purpose of clarithromycin is to reduce the clearance of dexamethasone. And so you have a longer exposure to dexamethasone. It would seem to me if that were the case, you just give more dex. But their data has been very intriguing and I think is being followed up on now in a randomized trial from Spain where they're going to look at POM, DEX, plus or minus clarithromycin. This lady also received bendamustine. Maybe we can talk for a second about your experience with it, myeloma, and what we know about it from the literature. So bendamustine is an alkylating agent that's been combined with both bortezomib and lenalidomide in studies. I think, in my mind, the response to bendamustine is in part dependent on the history of exposure to alkylators. If patients are resistant to cyclophosphamide and melphalan, I don't think they're going to get a lot of mileage out of bendamustine. If they are not, then they might. So this lady's had carfilzomib, she's had pomalidomide, bendamustine, lenalidomide. What are you thinking might be next? Well, right now she's on weekly bortezomib with doxyl and dexamethasone. And we did discuss the possibility, if she progressed on this, that consideration of a repeat 
stem cell infusion could be considered if she has stem cells available from a prior transplant, potentially with some low-dose Melflank conditioning, would be a reasonable option for her. Yeah, her biggest limitation right now is cytopenias, which don't allow her access to all this great new stuff that's out there on clinical trials. So if there was a way to boost her hematopoietic function with remaining stem cells, that would certainly seem like a very reasonable idea as well. The other category of drugs that she's not seen that one could potentially get are HDAC inhibitors. So right now, varinostat is available. You could combine varinostat with something else that's out there. It's not approved in myeloma, but it is available out there while we're waiting for other classes of drugs like antibodies to be approved. This, to me, was a really interesting case because I've got a couple of people like this that never seem to get long responses, but you give them something and maybe they're stable for a little while. She looks great. I mean, she doesn't look like her numbers say she should look. And that's an impetus, I think, by us as the physicians to say, well, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this. And so I think there is interesting data from the carfilzomib approval trial and from the pomalidomide phase two trials that compared POM-DEX versus POM that suggested that patients who achieve MRs in the refractory disease setting do just as well as patients who achieve a PR. And I think this is, you know, while they had nice responses to both POM and CAR, they didn't have great responses to like three things in a row here, bortezomib, then DCEP, then VTD, and yet she still trucked along. And that suggests to me that if a therapy is tolerable and you get stable disease out of it, in somebody who's seen all this, that may be a win. So that brings me a little bit back to the iceberg thing, mm -hmm. because I have heard you say in your talks when you talk about, because of course that yeah. iceberg idea is the idea of pushing the tumor burden as low as right. possible initially, right. right? but you know, MRD, but I've also heard you say in the same kinds of presentations that maybe that strategy is not as applicable in your recurrent disease setting, kind of like this patient. That's correct. And I guess what I would say is the jury's out right now on one to three prior lines. Early relapse, depth of response may actually make a big difference. But in late relapse like this, I'm not sure that it does. And while I, as you know, believe in lots of drugs and lots of combinations and pushing, 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 we're seeing patients who pushing, pushing, pushing doesn't make them better. Just getting that stable disease may be enough. Anything else you want to say about this lady and the observations on her as a person? I think she's weathered the storm remarkably well. You know, having been through... I was just trying to count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine lines of therapy, 10. She's on line 10 now. I think she looks remarkably well, has a great attitude. And I think these are the ones where the dogma about CR and VGPR really needs to be looked at through the lens of the patient who's trying to live through it. Because for her, that doesn't matter.